You're listening to Inland Edition on 91.9 KVCR. I'm Lillian Vasquez. Our guest is UC Riverside astrophysicist Stephen Kane. Thank you for joining us. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. So we're going to talk about some telescopes and much more than that. But first, the James Webb Space Telescope. Share what the telescope is and what its mission is. Yeah, so the James Webb Space Telescope, people have probably been hearing about that for some time because it has been planned for a long time. Uh, In some ways, it's the successor to the Hubble, although the Hubble is still operating uh, just fine. But after many delays, it was launched successfully on Christmas morning at about 7.20 a.m. Eastern time. It's had a uh, a long journey that it's still continuing uh, to a location about a million miles away from the Earth. And that's one of the main differences between James Webb and the Hubble Space Telescope, which is in a low Earth orbit. The James Webb is being deployed to a distant location so that it will be more easily be able to observe different areas of the sky without having the Earth in the way. But it's also much larger than the Hubble. The Hubble has a mirror diameter, which is about two and a half meters, whereas the James Webb is about six and a half meters in diameter. So it's larger. It'll have more access to the sky. And uh, in terms of what it will be doing, it'll be doing a variety of science. It'll be looking at the most faintest objects in the sky, distant galaxies, but of particular interest to my work is uh, the fact that it will be looking at planets around other stars. It'll be measuring their atmospheres and their compositions. And so uh, we will be able to, for the first time, be able to get really good information on what the atmospheres of planets orbiting other stars might be made of. So it's very exciting. So I was going to ask you to compare its predecessor, and you said Hubble is still in space and still doing its its job. And how long has it been out there? Oh, gosh, that's been about 30 years now because it was launched in the early 90s. Okay. So it's done pretty well, and it's still doing its thing. And what is the expectations for this telescope to be out there? It's going further, as you described. Do we anticipate that it'll last as long, or do we have any idea? Well, that's a really good question because that has actually changed. The answer to that has changed over the past month since it's been launched, Mm. which has been quite interesting. And the reason is, is because the launch went so well. Uh, On its way to a location called a Lagrange point, which, as I mentioned, is about a million miles away from the Earth on the far side of the sun. So it's going further away from the sun. And unlike the Hubble, it will not be accessible. So if, uh, mm. if anything goes wrong, and we don't think it will, everything's gone great so far, but it means that we can't repair it, and we can't replenish it in mm. any way. And that has been a great advantage for the Hubble because we've been able to add new instrumentation. Mm. But with the James Webb, it was initially planned to last around about five years, but that was in anticipation that there might be some course corrections on the way to the Lagrange point. Uh, but everything has gone so smoothly that the estimates from NASA are now that it will continue to deliver science operations for about 10 years. Mm. So that's really great news. Yeah, that is. So when is it scheduled to hit its destination? Uh, any moment now, basically, ah. because as I said, it was launched on Christmas Day. Right. It takes about a month. To, to reach the Lagrange point. Uh, and the, uh, I should say that the Lagrange point, the thing that's special about these Lagrange point locations is that's where 
the gravitational influence of the Earth and the Sun cancel out. And it means that a spacecraft can essentially park there. It has a stable orbit, and uh, it means it'll be able to, to sit there for, for a long time. And so on the way there, it's been folding out. It has uh, hundreds of hundreds of steps of deployment on its way there, and those have mostly happened at this point without a hitch. Uh, hmm. So it should be arriving there within a few days and be ready to start working. Now, this might be a silly question, but if it, you said it launched on Christmas morning and it's expected to be there shortly, how fast is it traveling? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how fast it, it is traveling, but uh, there's a, a really great NASA website which tracks the location oh. of the James Webb. Uh, I've been pointing um, my research students to this as well, and uh, even members of my family who have been really interested in seeing this. And you can track the location of James Webb as it makes its way there. Where would they go for that? Where are you sending them for that information? So if you look up NASA and JWST in Google, it's essentially one of the first uh, hits okay. that you come across. Uh, but then it has a special website called Where is Web? Okay. And that essentially shows a map of, uh, of where Web is at the moment. Got it. It's named after James Webb. Why have they named the telescope after this man? Well, James Webb was a NASA administrator. And uh, and he was uh, a person who greatly facilitated the development of this mission. As you may know, there is a history of naming these facilities after people who have contributed a lot to either the science or, in this case, the more programmatic mission development. And so that was the case with James Webb. Let me reintroduce our guest, Stephen Kane. He is an astrophysicist with UC Riverside. So how have NASA and UCR joined forces on this mission? Well, so Venus is, uh, is uh, one of my primary areas of research. And uh, there's a lot of overlaps here because uh, the work that I'm doing on Venus has had an enormous amount of success recently because last year uh, NASA announced that after almost 30 years of, uh, of not paying a great deal of attention to Venus, we're finally going back. And so I'm on the science team for several new NASA missions that will be going to Venus. And so those are uh, being developed and they expect to be launched by the end of this decade to return to our sister planet. A big part of the reason that I'm particularly interested in Venus is because Venus teaches us a lot about Earth, because Venus is a planet which is the same size as the Earth, which is why it's referred to as our sister planet. Okay. But it turned out very differently. The Earth is a habitable place to live, whereas Venus is not. And so in trying to understand how do planets evolve and why do some planets become very temperate places where you can have liquid water oceans, other places turn into runaway greenhouse, extremely hostile environments. And so there's a two-pronged approach to this. One is, of course, to go to Venus and try and understand directly from Venus. The other is to look at planets around other stars and see if there are any other occurrences mm. of either Earth or Venus analogs. And as I mentioned, the work that I'm really excited about with James Webb is studying the atmospheres of planets around other stars. And so the overlap 
between the work that NASA is doing, that UC Riverside is doing, is really the work with Venus and learning about planets around other stars, whether they're like Venus, combining that with the data from the Venus missions. And since, as I mentioned, James Webb, the expected lifetime now is more than 10 years, mm -hmm. then that means that James Webb will still be operating at the time that the NASA missions enter the Venetian atmosphere before the end of the decade. So there'll be a very nice overlap there as well. Were there other planets in the running of exploration or for this mission, or was Venus the one that was getting all the focus for some of the reasons you just indicated? Well, I would say that in general, the James Webb is in terms of planetary atmospheres, is seeking to construct a more general model of how planets evolve. And so not just looking at Venus-like planets, but Earth-like planets, planets that are more comparable to other planets in our solar system, like Jupiter and Neptune, and just getting a general inventory of the diversity of planetary atmospheres, because uh, that teaches us a lot about how unique our solar system is and what the possibility of planetary atmospheres are elsewhere. I consider Venus one of the most exciting parts of this whole thing because, as I mentioned, Venus' story is one which is intricately related to the pathway of our planet, both in the past of the Earth and the future of the Earth. And of course, one thing we all want to make sure of is that Earth never becomes Venus, and Venus can tell us a lot about what that would be like. This is Inland Edition. I'm Lillian Vasquez, and I'm speaking with Stephen Kane, who is an astrophysicist with UC Riverside, and we're talking about Venus, and that being one of your favorite planets or one that you think we can learn a lot from. So let me ask, how will you and your team use Webb's information to learn more about Venus? What information and data will be coming back to you from this telescope? Yeah, so in our solar system, we have Venus and the Earth, and um, they turned out very, very differently. And it's almost like two completely different stories that have been told when we look at the Earth and Venus, because Earth is this wonderful place to live with abundance of surface liquid water oceans. Uh, Venus is the, almost the complete opposite of that. Very hostile surface conditions, very, very high temperatures of around about 850 degrees Fahrenheit on average at the surface, as well as many other hostile aspects of the surface. So the two are very opposite to each other. And it's possible that Venus once was like the Earth in mm. that it also had surface liquid water oceans and then changed through time. And so what we're hoping to do is to look for more evidence of this transition between a Venus-like planet and an Earth-like planet by looking at planets around other stars. And this is where the James Webb Space Telescope can really help us. Because when we look at planets around other stars, we now know of almost 5,000 planets around other stars. And there are many, many more to be discovered. And as we look at terrestrial planets around other stars, we see them at different points in their own histories. And we're hoping to understand how often does this really happen? Meaning, how often does a terrestrial planet turn out like Venus? Does it evolve into this runaway greenhouse state that produces hostile surface conditions? And are there stages in between? And so this is what we're hoping to do with James Webb, to measure the, the composition of atmospheres of terrestrial planets around, uh, around other stars and try and get a handle on what this evolution really looks like. 
So with that said, do you anticipate learning more about climate change by looking at this and seeing the data? Absolutely. You know, one of the things I think a lot about is uh, the processes that took place on Venus and whether we see any indications of those on the Earth. Obviously, what happened on Venus is through natural processes. There are various factors that influence the climate evolution of a planet. Uh, Venus is closer to the sun, and we often take for granted that maybe that's why Venus is the way it is. And it's possible that that is the dominant reason, that it's closer to the sun, it receives more energy, and so that may have evaporated oceans earlier on. But there are other important factors that make the Earth and Venus different. Earth and Venus have very different rotation rates. Uh, Earth rotates very quickly. Uh, Venus rotates very slowly. Earth has a substantial moon. Venus does not. But also there's a lot of discussion about whether Venus has ongoing subduction of the surface, meaning plate tectonics. And plate tectonics is extremely important for the Earth because that's the natural mechanism through which Earth is able to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it in the interior. And that is something which we are essentially affecting very negatively at the moment through climate change, through human intervention. We are uh, breaking this cycle, this natural cycle of the Earth, whereby it's able to remove the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so it's accelerating what may be considered to be a natural process. But also as the Earth is cooling and that may change the way in which the surface is able to be subducted into the interior and might change the nature of plate tectonics, it's possible that looking at Venus is a preview into Earth's future. That's a, a very important way to look at Venus as possibly the end state of all planetary evolution. And that's why I think it's so important. Another question that I have, and I don't know if you know the, this answer, can you share the cost of the telescope and how long it was in the making? Yeah, I, <laughs> that, that's something I'm not really sure of the answer to, that because um, it, it has had some uh, cost overruns, and uh, I, I'm not sure exactly how to answer that question, to be honest. I'm not sure what the total cost has been. The total cost of James Webb has been uh, is measured in the billions of dollars rather than the millions of dollars. It is what we've referred to as a flagship mission. And the flagship missions generally are missions which benefit a broad area of astrophysics and planetary science, meaning that there is a large fraction of the community that can make use of that facility. Uh, because I mentioned that this, uh, James Webb won't just be looking at planetary atmospheres, it'll be looking at faint objects like other galaxies. Uh, and so uh, there'll be a broad number of people who are using the facility. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we wanted to make this the best possible facility it could be. So it was in the, measured in the billions of dollars. So it'll be used in many different ways from many different um, laboratories or people will be looking at it for different information. Yeah, that's right. It's When you see the results that come from the James Webb Space Telescope, I think many people are going to be amazed at how diverse the science is that people are going to be doing with it. It's going to be really exciting. How long did it take to create this before it was launched on Christmas? Was it years? Oh, yeah. It's definitely been far more than 10 years in the making. And in fact, wow. uh, my understanding is that 
uh, as soon as a mission is launched, we're already thinking about how we could have done things better. And one of the things to keep in mind with these missions is the time scales. That can affect both the science and the technology, uh, meaning that at the time when you conceive of a mission, you, you think to yourself, I would like a telescope that could uh, do these tasks, and this is the precision I would like it to perform at. By the time you actually launch the mission, which could be years later, mm. maybe even a decade later, the technology has improved. So the technology that you launch is 10 years old because it was not in the original design. Also, the science has changed. People might be thinking about different things than you were thinking about when you, when you originally conceived of the telescope design. And so a lot of the time when a mission launches, people are already thinking about, oh, if I could do it now, if I could start from scratch, this is how I would do it better. And so I'm sure that it wasn't long after the Hubble was launched, people were already thinking about, this is how we would do a version 2.0. And that, of course, became the James Webb. Right. Let me reintroduce our guest is Stephen Kane. He's an astrophysicist with UC Riverside, and we're talking about Venus and a mission, and we're really talking about the James Webb Space Telescope. So have you been watching the, or waiting for this launch for many years, or did you just get involved with it? Is it? How has it been in your world? Yes, I have been waiting for this for a long time. Many people have, and uh, many of my uh, my colleagues, particularly those in planetary science and uh, and exoplanets, people studying planets around other stars have been greatly awaiting this because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have discovered almost 5,000 planets. That's just That number is going to keep going up. And what we really want to be able to do is measure their atmospheres because as much as we can say about a planet that we find around another star in terms of how big it is, maybe it's the same size as the Earth, uh, we are very, very limited in what we can say about the potential habitability of those planets. In other words, whether it has temperate conditions that might be suitable for life, because we don't know what the atmosphere is composed of. And that's the real giveaway. When we look at the Earth, uh, and there have been many studies of looking at the Earth from a distance as though it were a planet um, uh, orbiting another star, there have been robotic missions to the outer parts of the solar system, which have looked back on Earth and taken pictures like the famous pale blue dot that Carl Sagan used to refer to. And what would we learn about another planet if we viewed it from a large distance? If we were to view the Earth, we would we'd look at the signatures of oxygen, and, for example, and assume that that indicates that not only is it suitable for life, but there is life present. Those are the kinds of things that we're thinking about when we're looking for uh, planets around other stars. Now, for my work, I'm certainly in, uh, interested in looking for uh, signs of life on other planets, uh, but uh, I'm also interested in signs of not life. In other words, is mm. it a hostile environment? Mm. Because I think determining the boundaries of whether a planet can host life or not is just as important as finding where it can host life. Right. Stephen, have you always loved stars and atmosphere since you were a little boy, or when did you find this passion? Yeah, I grew up in Outback Australia, and and uh, primarily during the 80s uh, was when I became very interested in this. 
Uh, I, I grew up in a town called Tamworth, which is the country music capital of Australia. I sometimes tell people it's the Nashville of Australia. <laughs> and uh, when I was about 12 years old, I went to a, a planetarium, uh, which was, I hate to build the stereotype, but was in a sheep paddock in Outback Australia. And it didn't have a projector like you see at planetariums today. Mm -hmm. It had a model of the solar system. I became very interested and I was... Uh, also fortunate to get interested in planets uh, around the same time that the Voyager spacecraft were doing their tour of duty of the outer solar system, meaning that these two spacecraft, Voyager 1 and 2, were passing Jupiter and Saturn. They also passed Uranus and Neptune and saw these pictures for the first time. And when I saw these pictures on TV uh, during the 80s, uh, it, it really struck me that we were seeing images that nobody else had seen before, mm -hmm. and I really wanted to do more of that. And in particular, Venus as well, uh, in the early 80s was when the Soviets were landing spacecraft uh, on the surface of Venus, and they were taking the very first color images that we had on the surface of another planet. And so that was very exciting for me to see as well. And so, yeah, I've always had this passion since I was very young about trying to understand planets and why they are so different. Wow. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing more about the James Webb Space Telescope and all that it's going to be seen. Thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you. Stephen Kane is an astrophysicist at UC Riverside. We spoke with him a couple of weeks ago. To find the article that inspired our conversation today, visit news.ucr.edu and put Webb Telescope in the search box. That's news.ucr.edu. More on the James Webb Space Telescope is online at jwst.nasa.gov. That's jwst.nasa.gov. We'll include the links when we post this episode on our program page. Join us again next week for Inland Edition. Wednesday at 2 p.m. and 6.30, right here on KVCR. To hear this episode and past shows, visit our website at kvcrnews.org slash Inland Edition. You can also listen to Inland Edition on your favorite streaming service. Inland Edition is a production of KVCR News. Support for this production, including writing and editing, comes from Rick Dulock, Sharina Nawad, and David Fleming. And we get technical website and social media support from Tim Steidel, Sean Houlihan, and Natasha Coles. I'm Lillian Vasquez. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.